The Connecticut Music Oral History Podcast is a deep dive interview series with musicians, artists, conduits, collectors, and dedicated fans, focusing on 20th century Connecticut music history. This project preserves narratives, heralds unsung movers and shakers, and defines Connecticut's influential role in cultural history. I'm your host, Brendan Toller. I'm an artist, a musician, a filmmaker, and marketing manager of the incredible Verso Studios at the Westport Library, where this very podcast is being produced. Verso Studios is a media resource and production hub, serving as an inclusive, empowered, future-forward cultural and learning center. A library branch of the 21st century, Verso Studios provides programming, commercial services, as well as educational and content creation opportunities. We have a state-of-the-art hybrid analog recording studio designed in part by Rob Froboni, the same guy who built Keith Richards' home studio down the road. We record bands, artists, audiobooks, podcasts, and everything in between. We have video production suites, classes, and events. Check us out at the Verso Studios website and on social media. Welcome to another installment of the Connecticut Music Oral History Podcast. This episode features Westport's own Barbara Reese, a musician, composer, and music therapist whose travels took her to Juilliard, High School of Music and Arts, University of Michigan, Tanglewood, the Brill Building, and Westport Country Playhouse and Theater Committee. Barbara's story is truly inspirational and vital to anyone who considers himself an artist. Here's Barbara introducing a track. This is music's magic that um, Wanda Houston sang. Um, and because, I don't know, music is my, largely my life and my love, um, this is, here's music's magic. Are lost or 
I'm here today with Barbara Reese, local musician and native West Porter. Welcome, Barbara. Thank you. And um, Barbara, we'll start off here. What was your first musical memory? My first musical memory was going to the St. James Theater with my parents. It was my mother's birthday and we were going to see Oklahoma. And we sat in the first row of the orchestra, and um, I was overwhelmed seeing a musical. It was the first musical I had ever seen, and just sitting next to the orchestra was mind-boggling. And um, and it was um, it was very moving. It was very moving, and it kind of um, part of it is a love story. And to see a woman and a man um, very much in love in a musical, in anything, just anywhere, is, um, to me, just touches my heart. And that touched my heart. It touched my heart so much that when I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 9, whatever I was at the time, um, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted I wanted to write love stories. I wanted story. I wanted to do music, make music, make music about people that cared about one another, and um, that to me was, anyway, riveting, and it changed changed my entire life. But you had a natural aptitude towards the piano, right? Well, I ha- yeah, Nursery but I school. hadn't played the piano all that much. I hadn't taken lessons at all, and um, but when I got home, I played the songs on the piano, and. My parents were thunderstruck, you know, that I could do that. 
Um, these are songs you heard in nursery school or something like that? Or? No, these were the songs from Oklahoma. <laughs> and um, anyway, uh, my father being who he was, the generous spirited lover of music that he was, um, said, my gosh, I'm going to have to find out who's teaching Irving Berlin's daughter because nobody, nobody was good enough for Barbara, of course, according to, you know, according to my father. So there he is the next day. You know, he didn't know Irving Berlin, but he had come from Odessa, and Irving Berlin was Russian-born, and so anyway, um, he called Irving Berlin and found out that Mary Ellen was st was studying with Siegfried Lichtenstein. And um, then he kind of thought about it, and he said, well, I better check on somebody, on a class, somebody classical. And whereupon he called Vladimir Horowitz, who was the eminent pianist at that time, and found out that um, Tamara, I think, is, is Vladimir Horowitz's daughter's name, was studying also with Siegfried Lichtstein. So shortly thereafter, he called Siegfried Lichtstein, and um, I had an audition, and that was one of the most beautiful periods of my life. But was Irving Berlin in the phone book? How did <laughs> how did your dad get in touch with him? Um, no, my father came over from Odessa on a ship by himself because they were killing Jews and in Odessa at that time, and um, he became a lawyer. He became um, a assistant attorney general of New York State. And there was no door that was closed to my father. My father loved everyone, whether they cleaned the floor or whether, you know, they were an impresario. And he found out and he called Irving Berlin. He's a lansman, right? Now, it was magical, I'm guessing, because, number one, and I kind of know this, you liked your instructor, but also it's just the magic of the beginnings of music, right? Yeah, well, it was the beginning of working with the kindest, the kindest man imaginable. Kind and nurturing and... Um, It was a beautiful experience. It really was. And Siegfried Lichtstein was, was just a very loving, caring human being. What do you think um, he in instilled in you? I hope he instilled in me a 
ki- being kind, being opening oneself up to everyone. I hope I hope that I carry that with me. Because um to contrast, that was not the experience you had at Juilliard, right? Right. Which was next. So walk us through that. Well, um, unfortunately, my father was a little upset that Siegfried Lichtstein thought I was too young to study theory. But, you know, nothing was too good for his Barbara. And so um, I had an audition for Juilliard and got in. Siegfried Lichtstein prepared me with solfeggiato for an audition at Juilliard. And I was assigned to Francis Goldstein. And um, she, she, her demeanor was very different even though today I still have um, a birthday book that she gave me as a gift, a birthday book so I can notate notate the birthdays of friends, of whomever I wish. And, um, and I still use it. And it's inscribed at the beginning, you know, to Barbara, from Francis Goldstein, not with love or affection, but but I think of her kindly, and she also gave me a book on classical musicians, on childhood of Mozart and Chopin, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I still I still have those two. I cherish them, even though my experience with her was not the best, Um, and anyway, I'll never forget, I'll never forget, um, I must have been kind of in my early teens, and I was wearing a skirt that belonged to my mother, because I thought I was looking jazzy at the time, and she looked at me and she said, "Um, where did you get that outfit? And I said, oh, this is my mother's skirt, and I was so proud to wear it. And she she kind of scoffed. Talk about uh, playing the Bach English suite. Oh, my goodness. Well, there were recitals um, in the auditorium, and I wasn't used to playing in auditoriums. And um, anyway, I had really worked hard on that Bach English suite. And I believed, you know, I knew it. I had to play it by memory. But um, I sat down and I started it, and it went quite well. And then I came to a portion that I was a little unsure of. And 
And one of my talents is improvisation. In fact, I'd say that's my greatest talent because I'm not a marvelous classical pianist. But anyway, instead of playing the Bach, I improvised that section. And um, anyway, after a few seconds, Francis Goldstein said, I want to hear Bach, not Barbara Backler. So once again, she was extremely critical. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and after that, I was fortunate that I had, I had applied to the High School of Music and Art and was accepted. And so it was thought advisable that I not continue at Juilliard. And anyway, um, I had theory and composition and conducting at Music and Art. And I, but I made a big mistake. They assigned me... They assigned me another mistake, another mistake, Barbara. Life they, is full of mistakes. It's okay. They, yeah, but you learn, you're supposed to learn from your mistakes. <laughs> Somehow, Barbara, well, now at this stage of the game, maybe I'm learning a little. But um, anyway, they, they gave me a double bass. They assigned the instrument. They gave me a double bass. Well, to lug from 136th Street and Convent Avenue to 88th Street and West End, a double bass to practice on, you know, at least three times a week. It's also a very physical instrument. (laughs) Wouldn't you say? I mean, to really play it, it's it's different from the piano. Well, anyway... So I said, oh, I don't know if I can take this home with me. It's it's very big, and I had to walk down the hill into the subway, you know. So they said, okay, you can be, a, let's hear you sing. So I sang, and they said, oh, you can be in the chorus. So there I was in the chorus, and that was a big mistake. I had an opportunity to learn the bass, the bass, which is the basics, the basis of music is the bass. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so, so I sang. <laughs> I sang with Diane Carroll, you know, and 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 other people that went on to have successful careers but it it was it was good it was good i love that aspect being in the chorus somehow somehow being in a chorus gives one a feeling of of togetherness of being being with all people in the world, it's like it's a different experience. When I'm in a chorus, I feel a kinship with everyone. And I've had a lot of choral experiences since then. 
I mean, it's it's probably naturally because the voices blend together, but you don't get that same kind of camaraderie being in the pit or with a, you know, quartet or something like that or even a duo. Right, right. It's togetherness. Yeah. So the fire of music is still very much in your heart and you attend University of Michigan. Oh, that's the best university in the whole United States. The bestest. <laughs> and that, yeah, I'm just sorry that I didn't stay in Ann Arbor. What a, what a great place. What a great place. Anyway, um, and there um, I had an opportunity to write musicals um, with other passionate people at the theater and take theater courses and music literature courses and met people from the Midwest who are who are real people real they're very real I loved I loved Michigan Ann Arbor this it's a beautiful city one of my favorites. Oh. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, but you would summer doing very interesting things. You, you were at the WNYC Music Library, the Berkshire Music Center, you know, Tanglewood. <laughs> so talk about those experiences a little bit as you're, you know, in your college years. Yeah. My college years? Well, I'm, I'm talking specifically about the... Oh, my experiences age. That, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, just your experiences at Tanglewood and... Um, well, yeah. at Tanglewood. At Tanglewood, um, there were enormously gifted people, and I was very young. I was about 16 years old, and people um, such as Lauren Maisel and Lenny Bernstein and... Charles Munch, and all these these wonderful people, not wonderful, these talented, extremely talented musicians were there. And also Hugh Ross, I can't, can't leave him out. He was the choral conductor that I sang the Magnificat with, which is one of my favorite works. Um, and I had a friend there, Mimi Sandbank. She was um, a composition student. And um, I needed somebody to, to to kind of fix my hair or something. And she said, oh, Barb, I'll fix your hair. I'll cut your hair. And I said, oh, how wonderful. So that was one experience that I had Mimi cut my hair and... And then she listened to some of my compositions. And at the time, she was dating Lauren Maisel, um, who later became a conductor of, of, the, um, of the New York Philharmonic. And she said, just keep with it. Keep with it. She was encouraging me, and she was very maternal. And... Um, that was a wonderful summer, and it was also very special being with Lenny, 
and being singing under him and his energy and his enthusiasm and his perspicacity and just it was it was like no other experience to be with with people who loved music and little did i realize that you know i was in an environment where there were extraordinarily talented people and what did i want i wanted to write musicals so that the music that i wrote was dramatically different than the music that these other people were composing um and after ann arbor you um went back to new york because you felt you had to be there in the what you thought was the hub and you go to the brill building what was happening in the brill building then well in the brill building were publishers and also fledgling musicians and well-known musicians who um were composing music in studios and uh anyway i knocked on doors and um finally after getting very cool reception or getting no reception at all, I went to um, Irving Berlin studio, which was across the street. And I knocked on the door and a very personable man wanted to know what I wished. And um, I said, well, I want to write, you know, I want to write songs. I'm writing songs, not I want to write. I was writing songs. I had already written a lot of songs. And anyway, um, he was he was warm and gentle. And but the long shot was he didn't listen to my music. He just looked at me and. I guess it was a, I was a pretty young miss, and he said, "Oh, just like go find yourself a nice guy and get married and forget about this music business." Anyway, that was Helmy Cresser who wrote, "That's my desire," and at the end he said, "And invite me to your wedding." And you took his advice, though? Did I take his advice? Are you kidding? Take his advice? Well, I wouldn't have. Nobody (laughs) was going to tell me what to do. I knew what I wanted to do with my life, even though, you know, my parents had other ideas. And, you know, so did a lot of people in the Brill Building. But I knew... I knew what I wanted. And you meet A. Chandler Warren. Yes, I met Chan. Oh, Chan was, he is wonderful. I'll have to call him tonight. He's in California, and he must be close to 100 now. Um, 
anyway, he was um, he was studying at the Columbia Law School, and um, he he became a theatrical theatrical lawyer. And um, I had written some songs for the Law Review, the Columbia Law Review. And so I spoke with him, and he said, oh, I have an idea for a musical. This was when I was back in New York City, and I was living in my parents' apartment. Yeah, that was a, a difficult transition, going from having my freedom and going going back home. I mean, going to New York wasn't the smartest thing I should have stayed in Ann Arbor, but anyway, I did. And so my parents, you know, expected me to get a job. But um, you, um, Chan came over to my parents' house one morning, and he said, well, let's, let's work on uh, Razzle Dazzle. I have this idea for the elves and the shoemaker. And um, I started writing music, and he wrote lyrics, and it was the best. It was the best. It was the best. I think we had maybe two meetings until my parents asked me, well, you graduated from college. I expect you now to get a job. And... I said, I do have a job. I'm writing a musical with Chan. And they said, they didn't have any, even though they were very cultured and went to the Metropolitan and they had a Philharmonic subscription. And my father was in a chorus and he went to the, he loved music. He just adored music. Um, They didn't understand the life of an artist at all, at all. So um, anyway, we finished the musical. We finished the musical. But I, I, had to, I went to ABC. I walked to ABC from 88th Street and put an application in. And... Um, and at first I was in music clearance, which had just notating what songs were being played on the radio or on, on television. It's one of the most anti-music places you could be, kind of. <laughs> Speaking from my own experience, yeah, you know, music clearance is, it's just, it's dry paperwork. Uh, yes, yeah. it's dry paper, Exactly. Music clearance. I had to notate what song and how many minutes it was. Yeah, this was this was after being at Michigan. It was the pits. Anyway, I met a nice person at ABC in in the writing department. He said, "You know, I think that there's uh, going to be an opening. There's going to be an opening with Milton Cross." Um, you know, I'll see to it that you have an interview. 
So I had an interview with Milton Cross. Who was Milton Cross? Oh, well, Milton Cross was a luminary. He was the, he did the synopsis of the operas on Saturday from the Metropolitan Opera. And um, he was well known, you know, by, by musicians. And anyway, I was a little scared to meet him, but I went and met him. And he finally, after I told him that um, I had studied theory and music literature, he hired me. Yeah, and he took me up to his office, and he gave me a big pile of papers, and he said, I want you to go through these papers. These are people who have auditioned for Met Auditions of the Air. And um, and I'd like to have um, some program where some of these people sing and um, so I, I thought well I'd hear these people I hear some of them sing oh no it was all paperwork I had to look and see what their background was and then I put the yays in one pile and the nays in another pile and it had nothing to do with music. It just had to do with seeing what, who had the most um, influential background, and those were the, the people that were selected for auditions. And um, it was a disheartening job. I was very unhappy. And um, the only good thing was that I had a piano in my bedroom and I could write songs. But um, anyway, I quit. And my parents were very upset. Um, and it was difficult living at home also. But you do eventually land a job at a school and... My question is, you know, because you were able to do a lot of writing, it seems, while you had that job at the Larchmont school system. Yeah. And my question is, is, you know, a lot of composers uh, of that era and from before, that's what they had to do. They had to have like a bank job or an insurance job and then do that work. I mean, some like, I'm pretty sure somebody like uh, Charles Ives had that, right? Yes, indeed. So my question, I guess, did you figure that out on your own or did you have sort of mentors and examples of like, okay, here's how I'm going to make no. my work happen? Yeah, yeah. No, my mother, my mother was a guidance counselor and she guided me. She picked out my dresses. She guided me. She she was at Central Commercial High School, and she was um, getting jobs for these uh, vocational students at the UN and at J.P. Stevens, etc. And 
you know, I was to follow in her footsteps. I was to be a music teacher. That's what she envisioned. <laughs> you That's still didn't envision that, though, right? No. Well, I tried it, but um, when it, I had a funny experience. Before I was in Larchmont, Marinette, I had a job at Russell Sage Junior High School, and um, it was in it was in Forest Hills, and my parents had a car, and so instead of taking the the train, my parents generously let me use their car. Well, the principal lived two blocks away, and so I drove him. And while I was driving him, his wife knew something about music, and she was telling him how I should teach the 90 fellows in the chorus, how, how I should teach music. It was the most painful, ghastly job. I mean, after that, I, I did get this job in Larchmont Marinette that was a little bit more creative and had a wonderful Dorothy Schutz, was a new principal, and she had come from Colorado, and she she kind of instructed me um, in, in what to do and how to do it, and I had um, Ronnie, who loved to sing, and I used to get together with him. He was um, a seventh grader, and I'd play the piano and he'd sing, and then I did the the, um, the auditorium programs, and um, the juniors would sing the the bottom part, and the seniors would sing the soprano part, and anyway, it wasn't. <laughs> I didn't have much of a chance to have my music heard because I was just busy, as you know, teaching music, teaching music, which was painful. It was painful. But it's always, I mean, what I'm getting from this is that there's there's peaks and valleys. You know, you meet J. Peter Bergman after this. Oh, that was the best, the best, best. Yes, I put an ad in the Village Voice, and Peter Bergman answered it, and he was working at Lincoln Center in the music library, and he knew, he knew, he knew the theater music, he knew... He knew Richard Rogers. He knew Kurt Files' music. He knew Sigmund Rommenberg. He knew all. He knew the th musical theater, and and unbelievably, Peter really thought I had a lot of talent, and we wrote. Anyway, we went to his agent. We. Well, first we wrote a lot of songs together. Just, it was just so wonderful. It was so wonderful being with Peter and being in in the world that that he loved also. 
And um, so we went to his agent, Helen Harvey, and played some of the music. And she said, oh, I have a wonderful project for you. Anita Luce has a book, has a, has a, um, has a play called Happy Birthday. Why don't you and Peter write, why don't you write the music for it? And, oh, I still have those printed lead sheets that I had to pay a bloody fortune for, for happy birthday. And um, so we showed that to, to Helen, and um, she was excited because she really liked some of the our songs. And she said, oh, I'm going to call Anita Luce. And she got Anita Luce on the phone and told her about us. And apparently Anita Luce had signed up with Judy Holliday and Jerry Mulligan, um Happy Birthday, had given them the rights to Happy Birthday. So anyway, there went Happy Birthday. But the collaboration was so wonderful, was was just, it was what I dreamed of. And I still see Peter. He's a music critic in the Berkshires. And we still have, in fact, he gave me a book he had written that he'd like made into a musical. But it's a very down musical about a schizophrenic. And um, it somehow... Um, I just, though I want to work with Peter, um, I'd like to work with Peter. Somehow that project isn't something that appeals to me. But you tried to uh, run a song to Clive Davis. Oh, well, when I was at Michigan, there were my three best friends and... Helen Helen Cohn transferred to um, to Boston University so that she could be near Clive, and um, she was dating Clive, and Clive um, was a poor boy. He had a scholarship, and. Um, he and Helen used to go to New York and they used to they used to leave everything at my parents' house. And I mean C Clive was a buddy, you know? I mean anyway, um I even went I went to his kids' graduation not to his graduation, I even went to their weddings. That's how close I was to Clive. Anyway, um, so I sent, um, Peter and I wrote something for Up the Sandbox, and that was um, a work that Barbara Streisand was going to be in. So anyway, you know, I thought, of all people, and he had just, about that time, he had just gone from Columbia Records to Arista, and um, anyway, he spent the summer at Woodstock. 
and he got a bee in his bonnet that the the people at Woodstock were going to incorporate the music world of the future. Now, did Clive, did Clive, was he musically trained? No, Clive was a businessman. He was a lawyer. That's what he was. Though he did have some training when he was with Columbia uh, Records. Anyway, so Peter and I wrote um, wrote a wonderful song called Back Then for Up the Sandbox. And I still think it's one of my best songs. Um, springtime, summer straight ahead, but I'm looking back instead. Anyway, I'm not a singer, but you can't tell from my from my singing, but it's a beautiful song. And we had it recorded in a studio. Um, and anyway, to make a long story short, Clive wasn't interested in the kind of music, in the ballads. He was interested in what was happening in the scene in Woodstock, and that music was not the kind of music that I was writing. And so, <laughs> was my was that song ever in the musical? No, <laughs> that was that was a keen disappointment. That was a big disappointment, Clive. Yeah. I thought you'd stand by my side. Even Helen didn't stay by his side. She, she left him. She left him and left the children and, and said that he better treat her and the children right or else she'd, she'd de de decapitate him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, Clive Davis. That's, yeah. But then upon moving to Westport, you meet um, John Williams. Yes. But before well, we get into John, when, when, do you, when do you move here? What, what, oh, yeah. moved here in 71. Great. In 71. Yeah, my, my father had just passed away, and... Um, and my husband um, moved his office to Greenwich, and um, and they were in private schools. And here was an opportunity for a public school, Coley Town Elementary, right down the block. So um, anyway, um, John Williams. Oh, John Williams. So I went to. Um, Adrian's cleaning store, and I was friendly with Adrian. Swiss Cleaners, it was called. And uh, there was a, a man there, and we started speaking about the Westport Country Playhouse, etc. And he, and anyway, and I let him know that I, I was writing musicals. Um, and he said, "I have the best idea for a musical." 
And he told me that that his he didn't tell me right then and there because I met him afterward that Victoria Woodhull was the first woman who ran for the presidency on the Equal Rights Party for the presidency of the United States with Frederick Douglass. Who could ask for a better idea for a musical? And so I had to get a lawyer so that John Williams would get the, you know, that it was his idea, all kinds of copyright things. I mean, I was spending a good deal of money just to get all the, all the accoutrements so that I could write this musical. And then I went, I went to Darianne. There was a woman who had written a book about Victoria Woodhull, etc. Anyway, um, the the community theater of Westport was very active, and I knew Jane Harmon, who was a theater big wig there, and I told her about this idea, and she said, "Oh." I have the perfect person for you, Eileen Wilson. She's not, she's a director, she's an actress, she's schooled in England. And I met Eileen, what a lovely, what a lovely human being. And um, I had written a few, and as soon as I heard this idea, I was writing songs. And she was receptive to my music. And um, anyway, we, f- we finished it. Um, we wrote um, Our Victoria. It was, and at that time there was the White Barn, and Lucille Lortel allowed us to have a performance. Lucille, who owned, who, uh, who had the, the um, Theater Jalise, in Manhattan, where um, a Kurt Vile work was playing, and and anyway, we invited big wigs and you know and hoped that somebody would be receptive. So eventually, you become a member of the Westport Theater Committee, and uh, oh, Marcella. Yes. Um, well, um, I was very flattered that I was asked to be a member of the, of the Westport Theater Committee because... Can I stop you for a second? Could you just set the context of Westport, you know, during this period? It's kind of an arts colony, right? And there's, there's a lot of theater people here. So tell us about that. Yes, there, there was, um... Some of the names I won't remember, but in the theater committee, there was Brenda Lewis, who had done Salome at the Metropolitan Opera. There was Marcella and her uh, husband, who were the the U.S. theater representatives in Europe and brought um, theater projects to Europe and I guess Asia as well, you know, all all over the world. Um, 
she was very well known in the theater. There was, um, well, initially Betty Corwin, who is responsible for taping all the the theater works, having them taped, and there's a library at Lincoln Center with all the theater productions of in New York, thanks to Betty Corwin. Um, there was uh, somebody by the name of Elliot who had been a, in Oklahoma, a dancer in Oklahoma with his wife, who was now a producer. So there were um, a lot of well-known people. I was... Uh, I was the the kid on the block that, that nobody knew <laughs> and um anyway so uh marcella was going to do a work by uh, a well-known writer uh in town hall and they needed somebody to play the piano and play Love and marriage, and and maybe write a new tune or two, and I'll never. Marcella was very strong-willed, and um, I ordinarily do am not that verbal. I just might stand there and listen to other people, and. So, but she wanted me to announce the production, and anyway, she coached me on how to talk in the town hall, and that was um, because I was a member of the theater committee, I was asked to do that. The other people were too influential or too busy with their own projects, Betty Corwin, who's well-known actress and director. Uh, these people, these other people on the theater committee had assignments or engagements out of town. I was the only one. <laughs> you had to do the dirty work, huh? Yeah. <laughs> that they could capture, that they could capture. The other people were too, you know, too well-known to, to, um, make an appearance at town hall. There'd be lines there to get their autographs, but nobody knew who Barbara Backler Reese was, so I was the one. And so I played, um, I played one or two of my compositions, and then whatever was needed. Um, I've forgotten the name of the of the production, Wedlocked, Wedlocked, and I've forgotten the name of the writer, but she's, she at the time was a well-known um, author of theater works. So um, that was an experience, learning how to present something before a large audience in town hall. It was a learning experience, not a musical experience so much 
as an elocution experience? Um, uh, Lehman Angle. Oh, well, I heard about the Broadcast Music Incorporated um, uh, that Broadcast Music Incorporated was having a workshop for writers and for lyricists and for musicians. And uh, naturally, I was excited and I auditioned. And uh, I was thrilled to be accepted in that workshop. And I had a wonderful collaborator, another Peter, Peter Knopf at the time. Um, and Edward Walland, who had written The Pawnbroker, also wrote a book called The Tenants of Moonbloom about a um, about the cousin of a real estate developer um, who was kind of lost. And so this real estate owner decided that this cousin could go around and collect the rent from these various tenants. And so Peter and I wrote songs. We did a synopsis of the story, and we wrote songs. And um, unfortunately, Lehman wasn't receptive. He didn't feel it would be a commercial success. But one of, one of the most poignant songs and, and moments in this is when this young man who's emotionally immature, he goes from house to house collecting the rent. And as a result, he, he, he grows up. He becomes more sophisticated. He learns he's not so introverted. And um, there's a scene that we wrote where he goes to um, somebody's house to collect the rent, and he gets to know the people well. And there's a beautiful song that we wrote about the important thing, the important thing is, is not doing a prestigious job, but it's just getting to know who these people are, getting acquainted with them, and and finding out who they really are. And Peter and I wrote a beautiful song about that. Um, Maxwell Anderson. Oh, the Sacco-Vincetti trial. Yes, one of, I want to, I want to impress you at this time that one of um, the most important things that I did 
during my career was finding either plays or books or projects that had meaning, that had meaning, for instance, the story I did, The Admirable Crichton by James Barry, um, and it's a story of it's a story of aristocrats in England, rich people, and they go on a boat. Um, Lena Wertmuller, I think, wrote "Swept Away" based on a movie. Swept Away based on that. Anyway, they they get to this island. Anyway, they're marooned, and and. It's they, they're helpless. They have no food. They don't know what to do. It's the servants. It's the servants who could build them huts. It's the servants who really come to their aid and assistance. It's the servants who find food for them to eat. And all the projects that I worked on had something important to say. They were just not willy-nilly musicals. They had strong characters, and and the Sacco Vanzetti try the Sacco Vanzetti case, which Maxwell Anderson uh, wrote about and did a play about, I thought would be a wonderful musical because it's really about um, about a case that that isn't tra- fairly treated, that isn't fairly handled by the courts. And so I, I took it upon myself to write the music for that. I didn't have a lyricist. Um, well, then a lyricist from the Theater Artist Workshop did some of the lyrics for me, but I didn't have the rights to it. And so... Um, I invited I invited Miss Mrs. Anderson Maxwell Anderson was deceased and um and she came and um we presented a few songs for her and um anyway um the long shot was that you know she was going to consult Stephen Sondheim or she was going to see if anyone else was interested in doing this work and um, as is in the theater I never heard from her after that presentation and then I discovered that um, she she was deceased and um, but Anyway, I'm very proud that though, you know, I'm an unknown and that many of my works were not presented. that whatever I attempted to do was worthwhile. It had a message. The characters 
had substance. And I feel that's what's lacking in the theater today, that, that the works really have no message. And when people leave, they leave. They don't carry anything with them. Now, that's a generalization. Maybe some of them do. But I know that in the musicals that I've written, that there is an important message and that people would grow by going to my musicals. Um, while I was writing musicals and I was in the theater artist workshop, I had some spare time and I decided that I would um, volunteer at a nursing home or a place for seniors. And I went to Metaplex, uh, which is no longer here in in Westport, but it was um, an, it was a senior living facility, um, and I spoke to the recreation director, and I uh, asked if I could play the piano or I could do anything musically. And she, Charlotte Laputra was the recreation director, and she said she thought that a chorus would be well-received. And she got together a few people, and on Mondays I would go there, and we would sing patriotic songs or songs from films, songs that they knew. And... Um, on Monday when I would go there, I remember that there was a few people, they would be waiting for me, and they would just be sitting in the seats. I can see them so clearly, even today. And after the chorus, I'd often just spend time with them individually or go to their rooms and I'd get to know who they were and what their lives were like. And I enjoyed asking them questions about their, their background, etc. And Charlotte, God bless her, she used to call me the music therapist. Now, I wasn't a music therapist. I was just, I was a musician, you know, somebody who happened to have a master's in music. Um, and um, anyway, one day Charlotte said to me that financially they had to leave Westport and they moved to Tennessee. And after that, um, somehow I, I missed Charlotte and I decided that she was calling me a music therapist. I wanted to find out what a music therapist was. And so NYU had a music therapy program. And I went to 
to New York and I sat in some of the music therapy programs. And I found out that one either had to be psychoanalyzed or go through psychoanalysis or it wasn't psychoanalysis, had to go through psychotherapy themselves and also um, had to improvise and um, had to be able to connect with other human beings. And I was very uh, impressed with the program. And at that point in time, you know, my musicals weren't going anywhere. And um, I was kind of disillusioned with the way the theater artist workshop was, was moving. And I applied. And I found out that the program for me would be six years. And for six years, I commuted to New York. Um, and it was one of the most growth. I grew as a human being. I had psychotherapy. I improvised. I journaled. Um, and then, of course, I had internships at um, senior residents. Um, I decided to work with seniors, um, and I worked at the Jewish Home for the Elderly and also in New Haven at the Jewish Home and other facilities, and I was supervised by a marvelous woman, Benedicta Shebe, and um and those six years enabled me to mature, um, to mature really to a large extent, um, and also to derive such pleasure from hearing the life stories of people that were in these senior facilities many of whom had nobody to talk to or no relatives around. And I really am blessed that Charlotte called me the music therapist. I really wasn't a th music therapist at that time, but I am a music therapist today, and I do, I, I have been giving my time um, to residences where there are seniors. I was working recently at the residence in Westport, um, and I had a chorus there. And unfortunately, um, COVID um, struck the place. And so I couldn't complete the Christmas program there. But I'd say that I've loved writing music, and I still, still am. In fact, I'm writing piano music today. 
or songs as well. But I'm blessed that I had an opportunity to be a music therapist. It's, it enabled me to grow. It's enriched my life. And I've met wonderful people who are struggling in nursing homes and senior facilities and who have had fascinating lives that nobody knows about, perhaps, except me. Well, you know, part of that Brill Building advice is true. The music business is not only difficult, as you mentioned before, it can be a little shallow. I think that this story is very inspirational because you were doing your own work amidst working jobs, having a relationship, raising a family, and not many people, I mean, you hear about people my age doing that now, kind of sacrificing their free hours to pursue their art, but I don't think many people did that in those days. I could be wrong, Barbara. No, I think that there are still people, there are still people out there. There are still people out there who, because it's, it's the food they eat. It's, it's the, their blood. If, if you have something to say, whether it's a poem or a piece of music, you you have to express it it's and so people unfortunately have jobs that probably aren't even re related at all to what their passion is but i hope that the, i hope that these people have time or make time to express what's in their heart today. I want to give listeners a visual when Barbara is having a great memory or conjuring up uh, sounds or images, her eyes close and I don't think I've seen a smile that wide. <laughs> I, I mean, you really, I, you are transported when you're taken to a good place in these memories. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, advice for artists or musicians coming up. Well, if you have that seed in you, pursue it as best you can. I have a daughter who's an eminent writer and poet. And she writes, she expresses herself. And if, if you have it, don't give it up. 
even though you may be typing away or on a computer during the day, find some time to do what's inside you. And initially, initially I wanted to prove to my parents that I could get a Tony Award. You know, that was my, or get an award of some kind. That isn't the important thing. It isn't being recognized. It isn't the recognition. It's who you are. And if you're an artist, that's who you are. And carry that with you to the end of your life. The person who's been by my side, who's believed in me, who's and who's a poet and the most brilliant lyricist, brilliant lyricist. And she got the humanitarian award when she graduated from college to make the greatest contribution to society. And she does every day. And who is this person? What's her name? Her name is Rosalind May Reese. Anyway, and she just coincidentally happens to be, you know, was put in my lap, you know, just anyway, anyway, and so, so I am privileged to have a daughter who possesses an artist's sensibility and in addition evinces a keen interest in my music. Whether I'm improvising or composing, she takes it upon herself to record whatever I am playing. Often, when I compose a work with a memorable melody, she surprises me, humming the melody continuously. She then proceeds to write a lyric. She has made possible the songs Music's Magic, How to Grow Love, Heaven on Earth, and The Currency of Love. I would like to share one of these songs with you. Love is a word spoken and heard. It's an emotion for which we all yearn. Love has no bounds, wide as the sea. Feel love's immenseness, let your love flow free. Ask it will 
Why we're here? 